Welcome to the Historical Motion Picture Organization, a podcast in which I interpret ancient historical events as if they were the basis for dramatized HBO-style productions. Our first fictional HBO production, The Poison King, will explore the life and times of King Mithridates VI of Pontus in his struggles against the Roman Republic and his attempts to preserve the existence of the waning Hellenistic world. Que les Romains pressés de l'un à l'autre bout, d'où vous serez et vous trouvez partout. This quote is from a 1673 interpretation of the ancient Greek tragedy Mithridate. The subject of said play, and of this series of podcasts, is Mithridates the Great. Mithridates was the ruler of an ancient state called the Kingdom of Pontus, which is roughly in what is now northeastern Turkey. Mithridates, whose reinal number was six, ruled from approximately 115 to 63 BC. He was an absolutely remarkable historical figure, not only for his dangerous exploits and colossal achievements, but also as the figurehead who led the ultimately unsuccessful attempts to prevent the Roman domination of the Greek East. His life, against a backdrop of monumental political and military upheaval, has been constantly studied and interpreted in the 2,000 years since his death. To his supporters, Mithridates was a salvation, promised by astronomical portents to be the saviour of the Near East against the enslavement and destruction wrought on by the ascendant Roman Republic. With the equal pedigree of both his Greek and Persian lineage, Mithridates was a strong leader, a cunning statesman, and a prolific agent of geopolitical change. He represented the last real hope the old world had of avoiding the fate that so many other societies had suffered, subjugation and cultural strangulation under Roman conquest. But to his enemies, Mithridates was a genocidal, power-hungry maniac, In his pursuit of an empire, Mithridates would destroy many cities, killing in huge numbers. He is, to slide a modern lens over our characterization, also considered by some today to be an archaic terrorist and a war criminal, orchestrating massacres of non-combatants and personally murdering several people himself. He was a typical Near Eastern Hellenistic king, fueled by conflict in his pursuit of power and absolutely ruthless in maintaining it. Mithridates was a complex man who lived in a violent, brutal age. Were his intentions always good? Did he genuinely strive to lead the Greek world in its last chance to remain free? Or was he an iomaniacal madman with sociopathic personality traits and delusions of grandeur? He was probably some combination of all of the above. I will bring you through seven decades of Mithridates' life. These historical events will be dramatised into a mini-series which roughly follows the traditional three-act structure. Complex historical events may not fit so neatly into such confines, but it's a challenge I'll try and navigate anyway. 
Although I've used a lot of differing sources for information, there are two texts which I relied on the most. The first is the 2010 book The Poison King by Adrienne Mayer. It's an astonishingly detailed account of almost everything we know about Mithridates' life. The Poison King was the first book I read about Mithridates, and it gave me such a comprehensive overview about the historical figure, as well as the title for our fictional HBO series. The second book is the 2020 publication entitled Empire of the Black Sea by Dwayne W. Roller, and it gives a great overview not just of our protagonist, but the centuries before his life and the events that led to the creation of the Kingdom of Pontus. Along with the Poison King, it brings Mithridates and his story into the modern day, as most discourse on the subject had significantly aged. There were a couple of other books I used for research along the way, particularly to get a better sense of the Roman perspective from this time. These would include Tom Holland's 2003 publication Rubicon, The Triumph and Tragedy of the Roman Republic, and Mike Duncan's 2018 book The Storm Before the Storm. The 2018 book Age of Conquests was also a great source for the entire Hellenistic era. Before I dive into Mithridates' life, we're going to need a little bit of historical background first. In order to understand Mithridates' actions, we have to have a good sense of the world he existed in. I mean, what was happening in the Near East around 120 BC? The Near East, along with sites in Mesoamerica, ancient China, the Indus Valley and the Andes, was what we call a cradle of civilization. Civilized societies existed in the Near East for approximately 4,000 years before our story even begins. The Near East was an ancient old land indeed. So at the time that our HBO series begins, in 120 BC, the Near East, and especially Anatolia, are very much the product of two major cultures that have repeatedly collided over the preceding centuries. The first of these is the Hellenistic world. The term Hellenistic comes from the Greek word for Greece itself, Hellas or Elas. The Hellenistic period, according to most historians, lasted somewhere from around 323 BC to 30 BC. It was a period when Greek cultural influence and power reached its peak. Now this was spread by the conquests of Alexander the Great, and in the aftermath of his death, numerous Greek-style kingdoms sprang up across the Near East, bringing enormous political change and intense cultural diffusion. Alexander the Great was a Macedonian monarch who led his armies on unprecedented conquests throughout the Near East and Asia, and established a Hellenistic order as far as India, as well as spreading Greek civilization across large swaths of the known world. Alexander was undefeated in battle, and is one of the most successful military and political leaders in human history. He's one of the most influential historical figures of all time. The Macedonians were a people that lived in northern ancient Greece, now, the Greeks themselves, particularly the Athenians, considered the Macedonians to be barbarians and not fully Greek, despite the proximity of their lands and the multitude of cultural similarities. Although historians tend to be divided, most consider the ancient Macedonians to have been an ancient Greek people, even if the central and southern Greek city-states, like Athens, Sparta or Thebes, thought of the Macedonians as rustic simpletons. Alexander conquered much of the Near East, but he didn't exactly leave clear instructions as to who would succeed him after his death. 
the top leadership of his empire then proceeded to tear each other apart for control of the spoils. They are known as the Diadochai, which is the Greek word for successors. They were the rival friends, family members, bodyguards, generals and lieutenants of Alexander the Great. The Diadochai fought a multi-generational series of wars for control of the Macedonian Empire after Alexander's death. The ones who survived founded multiple polities and kingdoms in this period, further solidifying the spread of Hellenistic civilization that Alexander had championed. This was kind of bound to happen. You've got a huge empire, untold amount of power and wealth. Alexander doesn't name a successor, so when he dies, you know, you've got a, as Dan Carlin calls it in hardcore history, a kind of crabs in a bucket scenario. Everybody has a reason why they should take over the empire, why they should be next in line. So where once there was briefly a united pan-Hellenistic polity, it very quickly splinters. And in its place there are multiple competing Hellenistic kingdoms, where the natives make up the bulk of the population but they're governed by a Greek ruling class. Over time these cultures go through a fascinating metamorphosis, where the ruling Greek elite and the native culture mix together and fuse into something new. That's why I love this period so much. So who ruled the Near East before Alexander kicked in the door and burned the whole house down? Well, the answer to that is also the second major culture that influenced the world of Mithridates in the Near East. The Persian Empire, which Alexander destroyed in the 330s BC, was one of the most influential and powerful states in ancient history. And in the Near East of 120 BC, it's absolutely steeped in Persian culture and influence. There have been multiple Persian empires in history. The term Achaemenid Persian Empire is used to differentiate between later Iranian entities, such as the Parthian and Sasanian empires. It existed from 550 to 330 BC, and was an ancient imperial state and one of the most powerful entities on earth during its 200 year existence. It was formed by nomadic Persians, a tribe of Iranian peoples that arrived in modern-day Persia sometime around the year 1000 BC. They remained a minor tribe in the sticks until, under the leadership of Cyrus the Great, they overthrew the reigning Median Empire in 550 BC. Cyrus's successors went on to establish the biggest empire in existence to that date. I mean, the Persians went from the occupants of a backwater parcel of territory to the masters of the known world in under a century. The Achaemenid part of the name derives from a mysterious ancestor who allegedly founded the dynasty, Achaemenes, or the Hellenized version Achaemenes. Achaemenes may not have actually existed. Many ancient empires and dynasties often used fictional progenitors and retrograde foundational allegories once they became firmly established. And they often did this in order to cement their relationship to power or to legitimacy. Achaemenes, if he did actually exist, may have reigned sometime around 730 to 650 BC. He was the Persians' apical ancestor, the often legendary founder of a family or clan or tribe or noble house or ethnic group. The clash of civilizations between the ancient Greek states and the Persian Empire gave us some of the most thrilling, heart-stopping encounters in history. But the Greeks and Persians didn't just kill each other, 
Their cultures intermixed and left their imprints on parts of the Near East that they fought and bled over. One creation of such synthesis was the Kingdom of Pontus. In the centuries before Alexander the Great, the ancient Greeks were great colonizers, establishing a poikia. They established these colonies across the Mediterranean, the Aegean, the coasts of southeastern France, Sicily, southern Italy and beyond. Colonies established in Anatolia and the Black Sea had profound impacts on shaping the cultures of those areas, and were then largely conquered by the Persian Empire during its ascent. One polity that resulted from this cultural mixture, the Kingdom of Pontus on the southern coast of the Black Sea, will prove to be a vital setting of our upcoming story. Pontus was a Hellenistic era kingdom in northeastern Anatolia. It was originally part of the old Achaemenid Persian Empire, and Pontic culture represented a synthesis between Hellenistic, Persian and Anatolian elements. It was ruled by a cadet branch of the Achaemenid dynasty, but became more Hellenized through contact with old Greek colonies in Anatolia. Pontus was a melting pot of old Persian royalty and post-Alexandrian Hellenism. The Kingdom of Pontus, and many of its surrounding states, grew from the post-Alexandrian world. Its founder, Mithridates I, became the Basileus of Pontus in 281 BC. This is taken as the kingdom's foundational date. Mithridates I was a Persian nobleman, and the region had been a satrapy, or province, of the Persian Empire. When the rival successor kingdoms of the Diadochoi began springing up and fighting each other, some smaller entities, like Pontus, began to find a little room to gain some form of independence. The kingdom was Hellenistic in culture. Remember at this time, there are no Turkish people as we understand that live in the region today. Anatolia was both a Hellenized and Persianized region, diverse in culture, language and religious practices, and populated by various Hellenistic-styled Persian-influenced kingdoms. Pontus was one of those kingdoms. It was a symbol of the fusion of Greek and Persian, Hellenistic and Achaemenid. Its ruling class were descended from Achaemenid royalty, while its culture became Hellenized as a result of constant interaction with the Greek kingdoms around it. It was exactly the type of multi-ethnic state you could expect from the Near East in this era. The Near East was an ancient world. When it's time for me to break this story down into small pieces during pre-production at HBO, I could potentially frame it as a titanic struggle between the Old East and the New West. Now, as studying history makes it clear, there are a few neat and straightforward ways to divide and categorise past events like that. But, and this is the luxury this podcast provides me, I'm pitching this as a modern day recreation of these events, right? So in taking creative liberties to do so, it allows me to arrange my motifs, my themes, my central conflicts, into more sharply defined separations. So I could frame the story as an Old East fighting for survival against a New West. But who in this context are the West? They're a violent, tough, industrious people who make a formidable opponent for any civilization. So far they've racked up an impressive pile of vanquished enemies. They are the great nemesis, the antagonists, the bad guys if you will. Well, depending on your point of view. History is heavily influenced by perspective, bias, prejudice, inclination. Whenever we consider history, we have to ask ourselves, who's telling us this story? What agenda might they have? The West is the ever-expanding Roman Republic. The Romans are the evil empire. 
They're Darth Vader and company. You know, this endless stream of bloodthirsty vampires who suck the life and vibrancy out of everywhere they enslave. But if we're telling it from the Roman perspective, Pontus and the other Anatolian kingdoms are all treacherous, effeminated, antiquated rubes. They're denying superior Roman civilization. And who the hell are these people to defy the Romans anyway? By the beginning of this story, which begins in 120 BC, the Roman Republic has time and again overcome staggering odds. Now remember that Rome started out as just a small city-state, and over the course of eight centuries it ended up ruling an enormous part of the world. The animosity between the Romans and the Gauls, a Celtic tribe from what is now France, was a key hallmark of the early Republic. The Gauls even sacked Rome in 390 BC, and historians today believe this traumatic event forever affected the Roman point of view. You must constantly attack. Never again would an enemy enter Rome. This kind of historical trauma may go a long way in explaining Rome's very aggressive expansionist tendencies. Of course, the problem here is where do you stop? Once you conquer this tribe or destroy this enemy, there's always another, isn't there? Every time you conquer more territory to, you know, quote-unquote, protect the borders, you got to then protect the new borders. The non-contradictions of defence by attack seems to have consumed the Roman psyche. It wasn't long before Rome began to clash with the big powers outside of Italy. In the Pyrrhic War, which lasted from 280 to 275 BC, they fought and defeated the Hellenistic kingdom of Epirus. Rome's clash with Epirus was its first of many wars against Hellenistic kingdoms, and it signalled Rome's ascendancy on the ancient stage. But the Punic Wars rank among some of Rome's biggest defeats, and at the same time, some of its greatest victories. Over the course of 118 years, these three interlinked wars saw Rome nearly defeated on several occasions. But this is the absolutely extraordinary thing about the Romans. Their absolute refusal to give up or surrender, no matter the magnitude of their loss. And this is probably a continuation of the mindset after the nightmarish Gallic sack of Rome in 390. The Punic Wars, which lasted from 264 to 146 BC, were a trilogy of conflicts and a life and death struggle for hegemony over the Mediterranean between the Roman Republic and the Carthaginians. The fortunes of war swung back and forth multiple times, but Rome, at a great cost in lives and effort, overcame Carthage and burned it to the ground in the climactic conclusion of their long-running struggle. The Punic Wars were epic in scope and extremely destructive. The trio of conflicts were a vast, devastating vortex of death and annihilation. They're often likened to the ancient world's equivalent of the Second World War, it was an epic, world-altering confrontation between two great powers to determine which one would take charge of civilizational trajectory. But the Romans wouldn't stop in just the Mediterranean. In the same year as they finally annihilated their Carthaginian opponents, 146 BC, the Romans completed their conquest of mainland Greece at the Battle of Corinth. So do you see what I mean about the Roman Republic at this time? It's in a state of quasi-perpetual warfare for most of its existence. The Romans fought almost constantly against one enemy or another. By the time Rome and the kingdom of Pontus begin to grate on one another, 
Rome has annihilated many enemies. The merciless imperial war machine that's already wiped out several surrounding cultures is now inching towards the bastion of the old free world. Our protagonist, Mithridates, is determined this will not come to be. So this is the world that our mini-series and our characters will inhabit. Who is our protagonist? Who is the vehicle that will drive us from beginning to end of this epic tale? Well, it's Mithridates, sixth of his name, Basileus of the Kingdom of Pontus, the mighty ruler of a Hellenistic state on the Black Sea. Mithra was the ancient sun god of Iran, and Mithridates roughly translates to given or sent by Mithra. Our story will revolve around Mithridates. We will try to frame the world he came into, his actions during his lifetime, and his legacy in the world that he leaves behind. Before the main action of our series begins, there'll be a short scene set in 135 BC, 15 years before the main events of our show. This event sees the sudden appearance of a comet across the skies of the Near East, signalling the arrival of a great saviour. We know for a fact that a comet appeared in the sky in several parts of the world in 135 BC. Writings from Han China confirm it. They saw it too. Across the ancient Near East and Anatolia, an event such as a comet would have been viewed as a wondrous sign to signal the arrival of a saviour and a salvation. In our brief, cold open scene, the night sky is going to radiate in stellar luminosity with the appearance of this comet. The entire ancient world witnesses this stunning revelation from beyond the heavens. The Greeks and Romans saw the Moors portents of doom, harbingers of war and violence. This point kind of makes me laugh. The Romans, who had fought just about every society in existence at this point for centuries on end, were suddenly worried about war and violence. It also speaks to the cultural melting pot that the kingdom of Pontus was. It was a Hellenistic state with significant Persian influence too. The Greeks often feared comets, but the Persians saw them as a wondrous sign of change, hope and salvation. The comet of 135 BC coincides with the birth of none other than our protagonist, Mithridates. Or so we're told. I mean, a detail like this would be very easy to add to the story after the fact. But the implication here is that Mithridates, conceived at the moment this comet appears in the skies, is the salvation that the Old East has been waiting for. We don't have an exact birth date for him. 135 or 134 BC are usually accepted as accurate. But as often the case with ancient history, we just don't know. The comet is just a brief flash in the pan though. We're not going to begin our series in 135 BC. I mean, that would be 15 years before our inciting incident. That's a lot of history to cover with Mithridates' life. And I'm going to pick my battles. Because the truth is, we know very little concrete information about his birth childhood or teenage years. I mean, there's anecdotes here and there, but I'm making the choice to deliberately leave this out for reasons of scope, time, and historical reliability. So with our comet prelude over, how about an intro sequence? Of course, the opening title music to Game of Thrones has just instantly begun playing in my head. Or we could try a Sopranos-style sequence. You know, instead of Tony driving a suburban from New York to New Jersey, 
Mithridates could journey on horseback from Pergamon back home to Sinope. He drinks wine, he experiments with poison, fathers love babies with his harem, leads armies into battle, throws darts at pictures of famous Romans. All joking aside though, up to now, other than our Comet Cold Open and our hilarious title sequence, we focused only on the macro level, the world of the Near East in 120 BC. Let's zoom into the micro and get a sense of Mithridates and his family, as well as the surrounding kingdoms and polities with which Pontus interacts. Mithridates was born in Sinope, capital city of the kingdom of Pontus. Sinope was an Ionian Greek colony, founded sometime around the 7th century BC. Ionian Greeks is a term used for the Anatolian-based descendants of Greek colonists that came to Asia Minor in approximately the 8th century BC and afterwards. Mainland Greeks considered them to be kind of cousins, if you will, and both Alexander the Great and his father, King Philip II, often used the enslavement of their Ionian cousins as justification for attacking the Persian Empire. Mithridates' father was the ruling King Mithridates V, who had been on semi-friendly terms with the Roman Republic. He even supplied them with some troops and naval forces to aid them in the Third and Final Punic War. Mithridates V, along with being the father of our protagonist, is the seventh ruler of the Mithridatic dynasty. Mithridates V had the nickname Eurogetes, meaning the benefactor. As part of a Persian custom intended to protect a father from grief should his son die in infancy, Mithridates was not introduced to his father until he was five years old. Mithridates' mother was Laodicea VI, and he would have lived with her as an infant in the royal harem. Laodicea had two sons named Mithridates, the first being the protagonist of our show, and then there was his younger brother, Mithridates Crestus, meaning the good. Crestus was favoured by Queen Laodicea, who wished that he would be the heir of Pontus. Laodicea was a Seleucid princess. The Seleucid Empire was a Hellenistic Diadochi state in Western Asia. It existed from 312 BC to 63 BC. Its unusual name comes from its founder, Seleucus. He was a general in Alexander the Great's army. The Seleucid Empire is a really fascinating entity. There was an urban Greek elite, which formed the ruling class of an enormous, diverse, multicultural Hellenistic kingdom. It stretched over a vast amount of territory, encompassing most of the old Persian Empire. So Mithridates and his family have some pretty impressive pedigree. They have equal Hellenistic and Achaemenid blood, and they claim to be descendants of Cyrus the Great, founder of the Persian Empire, as well as the founder of the Seleucid state, Seleucus I. That's a bloodline that fuses the highest echelons of the old Hellenistic Persian East. So there are a couple of kingdoms and political entities that surround Pontus. One of the most important is the kingdom of Bithynia. Bithynia was a Hellenistic Anatolian polity to the west of Pontus, and a frequent enemy of Mithridates. The Bithynians were a Thracian people, who after the Alexandrian conquests of the Anatolian territories, managed to maintain some independence from the Diadochi kingdoms, particularly the Seleucid Empire. To the east of Pontus, there is the Kingdom of Armenia, a former satrapy of the Persian Empire, which asserted independence during the chaotic breakup of both the Persian and Macedonian empires. Then there's the Kingdom of Cappadocia, a Persianized kingdom to the south of Pontus. Originally a satrapy of the Persian Empire, it was then conquered by Alexander the Great during his Asian campaign. Cappadocia retained some form of autonomy 
and was more Persianized than Hellenized. To the southwest of Pontus is the Kingdom of Galatia. Kingdom of Galatia was a hybrid synthesis of Gallic, Celtic, and then Hellenistic culture. It resulted from the Celtic invasion of the Balkans in 279 BC. The Galatians were fierce warriors, and they often plagued the Hellenistic kingdoms around them until they were severely defeated in several wars and became more Hellenized. Hellenistic kingdoms in Anatolia often employed Galatians as mercenaries due to their ferocity in battle. To the west of Pontus, and unfortunately sandwiched in between Pontus and Bithynia, is Paphlagonia, a small, independent, but often fractious and poorly ruled polity. It was occasionally under the control of the Diadochoi after the breakup of Alexander's empire. So I've just basically described five kingdoms in a row to you. It's a divided, melting pot of Hellenistic, Persian, Anatolian, Diadochoi kingdoms and mini-states. I mean, how do I get our viewers to understand this? How do I get them to take so much information in? Well, one mistake I'm keen to avoid is an aspect of Oliver Stone's 2004 epic about Alexander the Great, in a scene where 11 characters are introduced in 40 seconds. It's just too much information to take in. I'm not here to criticise movies. There is more than enough podcasts and YouTube channels to criticise both the historical accuracy and the production choices made when making historical epics. Is there another way I can introduce such a collection of rival kingdoms, each one with different culture and foreign policy and a different ruler? Well, I actually think from a storytelling perspective, a less is more approach should keep this pretty simple. Once the show starts and scenes continue to progress, we'll have our characters do the work for us. We'll gradually bring in each new geographical entity into this mosaic of competing kingdoms. By this point, we've now established the historical, geographical and political background for the show. So this brings us to the conclusion of episode one of our podcast series on the life of Mithridates. Please tune into the next episode of the Historical Motion Picture Organization, where we'll actually begin creating our show and explore the pilot episode of our HBO miniseries, The Poison King. Thank you for listening and see you soon. This podcast opens with a modern interpolation of a Hurrian hymn, estimated to be from around 1400 BC. The Hurrians were a people of the Bronze Age Near East, and the music is a modern interpolation of a cuneiform tablet. I just wanted to credit Braden Olson of Sundried Tomatoes, as he very graciously allows people to use this track free of charge. If you want to check out the song in full for yourself, just type into YouTube Hurrian Hymn to Nikhal. I just felt it was the absolute perfect piece of music for this podcast. So thank you to Braden for allowing us to use it copyright free. I have an iTunes playlist where I have tons of tracks that I listen to while I'm reading history or studying history or writing or researching for this podcast. And this one has become one of my favorites over the last year. To subscribe to this podcast, just search for the Historical Motion Picture Organization on whatever platform you use, and hopefully you'll find me there. If you want to follow the podcast on social media, 
you can find me on Twitter by searching at HMPO podcast or on Instagram with the handle HMPO underscore podcast. You can find the show on YouTube by searching HMPO podcast and you can contact me directly by email at hmpo.podcast at gmail.com. Growing a podcast from humble beginnings is a very difficult thing to do. So if you can support the HMPO in any way, it would mean a lot to me. You can do this by following me on social media. You can share the podcast with even one other person. And you can subscribe to me and give me a good rating on whatever platform you listen on. I will really appreciate it. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And I hope you'll join me again soon in the ancient past.